Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 125. This interview is with Natalie Nahai, known as the Web Psychologist. She's a great speaker, trainer, and author of Webs of Influence, published in 2012. In 2011, in a master coup, Natalie coined the term Web Psychology. Natalie brings together psychology, design, and technology to understand better online persuasion. In this interview, we discuss how brands can improve their online presence, the challenges that brands face in creating engagement, and issues of aligning brand values with online conversation, and much more. Natalie provides us with a lot of great insights and practical tips. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue Internet Show, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, author of TheMindset.com, that's T-H-E-M-Y-N-D-S-E-T, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes on the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to quick. Enjoy the show. So, welcome to the Minter Dialogue. Today I have from Skype, even not very far, unfortunately, the wonderful Natalie Nahai. So, Natalie, tell us who you are, what you're up to, and like Joel, Mitch always says, you know, who you are, what you do, but also your mindset. How would you describe your mindset? <laughs> That's an interesting one to start off with. Uh, well, so yes, I am a web psychologist, which means I'm interested in how we get persuaded to behave in certain ways online. So it looks at how our online environments influence our choices, our attitudes and our behaviors. Uh, my background is pretty mixed. I did a BSc in psychology. I spent two or three years at Central St. Martin's doing fine arts. I spent sort of several years in the music industry performing on classic train of violin and guitar. Happened to end up in web design, so I learned how to code websites just because I didn't want some guy doing it for me, my music endeavors. And then at some stage, kind of blurred them all together and started thinking about how the behavioral sciences and psychology can influence uh, design and behavior on websites. And then I started writing a book, which kind of got me to where I am now. Mm. Well, you have a gorgeous voice. I didn't know you played all the other, <laughs> other instruments as well. Um, <laughs> Um, and that's another thing we share because I'm, I'm glad into music. But I think it, what's interesting about that is that you were in an industry that was at the forefront of the revolution as it was coming along, whether you're in media or music or maybe porn. You're in the, mm -hmm. you know, one of the key ones that was at the forefront. So my spacing and all that was that um, your video just cut off of me, but that's not a big deal. But anyway, so um, so you're not you wrote the, the Web Psychologist um, two years ago. Tell us about the, 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 the reason, you, uh, how you came up with that book. So the Web Psychology is kind of the brand that I came up with to support the, the main idea behind the book. And the book is called Webs of Influence, The Psychology of Online Persuasion. And the reason that uh, I wanted to write it was because I could see so much fascinating research being done across all of these different disciplines. So things including human-computer interaction, cross-cultural psychology. You've got things like neuroaesthetics, which is the study of how uh, we respond to visual stimuli but at a brain activity level. So there's all these different fields that could teach us about aspects of online behavior, of our online environments and how they influence us. But no one had really created um, uh, like a roadmap, if you like, that encouraged people to look at all these different disciplines and how they connected. So the idea behind web psychology was really to create an umbrella term uh, through which in the book people could start looking at these different disciplines and start learning from all of them. So to make that knowledge accessible to, to everyone really. All right, so when you are engaged by a company, it comes to you and says, listen, Natalie, you need to help us. We need to get more clicks. We need to get more traffic. How do you organize your conversation with them with regard to what you like to bring to them? 
Um, well, the first thing that I always ask is, well, who's your audience? <laughs> but before before you kind of even get to that stage, but it's a bit hard to kind of go on with this one. Um, it has to come down to the values of the company. So why why do you exist and why should people care? Uh, and typically, what we're finding more and more is that it's not so much about what it is that you do, but the values that you espouse that will then attract like-minded people who become advocates. Mm -hmm. So really, the why is very important, the values are important, then who the audience is, whether it's a good fit, and whether they've done their research, not only in the demographics of their audience, but in the psychographics. So what are their personality uh, profiles like? Mm -hmm. Have you created um, personas based on data that you've acquired, whether that's qual or quant? What about uh, some of the motivations they might have, the implicit motivations, the explicit motivations? What about culture? Um, so, so kind of getting people to think about the deeper questions um, as to you know, why they're running their business and who it really is for and who it's going to benefit. And then once you've done that huge bulk of preliminary research, then it's a question of communicating most persuasively with that and then using um, psychological principles to make the experience a lot more intuitive, frictionless and persuasive to get mm. them the best results in the shortest amount of time. So very much the Simon Sinek, why, how, and then finally what first? I mean, start with the why. Precisely. Yeah, so I mean, with, with anything, I think you sort of really tapped into something that, for instance, good storytellers have been doing for years, good marketers have been doing for years, but at least from my perspective, um, the part of the why that often gets missed out is well, is, is heavily uh, influenced by the psychology of the person that you're trying to reach. Mm. And typically you'll find that audiences will segment into psychographic profiles. And that's something that really has to come at the very beginning of your process. All right. So very, I'm very coolly aligned with that thought, of course. When I, and, and we face some companies that are cruelly commercial. So mm. where it seems it's all about finances and turning a quick buck is there is there hope for that kind of a company uh, i mean I, I i just imagine is that the kind of company you say no -uh? or how, how do you deal with that kind of a financially driven artist oh, you know i don't care about what well, i don't care about the why is there ways to turn them around um i would say yes it depends on the industry i think if you're talking about industries so for instance finance industries like banking systems or others that are kind of almost beyond the reach of of any sort of um, cultural change, or at least the change that we've been seeing is possibly not in the right direction. Other than those industries, there are two key ways really that I think that are, that are worthy of investigation trying to, you know, in terms of trying to get them to change their spots. The first is the shock approach, which is basically saying, look, if you conduct your business without integrity and you screw people over, you're going to get called out on it and you're going to fail, as we've seen has happened several times through social media campaigns, like naming and shaming. Uh, or the second one, which is more carrot and stick, is to say, look, um, there's a huge untapped market of Gen Y coming up. This is the, the future of your business. Uh, and research has shown time and time again that the Gen Y um, customers tend to be very interested in values being baked into the business model as opposed to just a bit of CSR slapped onto the side. And so if you're looking to extend your success over a period of generations, then you have to appeal to them. So that means, okay, well, what can we do now to start making values central to our business model and to our propositions? Hmm. Totally love that. I mean, you know, of course, a lot of these bigger companies have done all the work of writing their values in annual report, putting it on the wall, but then they mm -hmm. don't necessarily live them. And, <laughs> and I, I, I come across, you know, so many of these employees who feel disenchanted or disengaged with their own values. And then, you know, it becomes a, a rather ominous course to try and 
then create some authentic engagement when you're pushing out into the your customer base? Mm. I think it's much easier for people to well, let me rephrase that. It's, it's much harder than we think to segregate, for instance, work and life. We create all these dichotomies and we create these silos and they're, they're all false, really. I mean, at the extremes, you might get people who completely segregate their, their work and their life or that are completely different from one silo to the next. But actually, the way that we choose to live our lives, whether that's in the culture that we inhabit at work or the culture that's facing our clients or the culture that we have at home with our family and our friends, they all influence one another. And so I think what you're saying there is, is really hitting the nail on the head. You know, you can't you can't expect an organisation and its people to adopt a certain culture with their customers if they're not experiencing that within the organisation to begin with. Yeah. So you, there you have you have a client that comes to you and says, "Listen, Natalie, I really want to improve my my performance on the web," uh, and you end up with a conversation that's going to be more focused on internal culture and. Um, making values de facto or can you I mean and calling out when they're not living the words that they're writing you can I don't really engage in much of that work I mean I think it's it's one of these things where I imagine if you run an agency and several of my friends do then they will undertake that kind of a client because the, the kind of change we're talking about is you know slow it requires patience often it's systemic change and to have that you have to have a mind or people within your organization that have minds to be able to implement step-by-step -step changes. Mm. I don't enjoy working that way. And mm. so I rarely take on clients that require that kind of, you know, that kind of involved um, work. The clients that I take on, they can be large or small, but they tend to be a lot more agile and they typically have a testing culture uh, and one in which um, sort of risk-taking and experimentation is, is uh, supported to make it much easier to kind of you know, help them. So take take us through how you approach bringing psychology into us. Let's let's say you have a, a fertile uh, environment where you've got a, a, a CEO who's with the program. You've got values that are interesting. How do you how do you then work it through into making a, a more effective uh, website? It depends on what element you want to start with. So some people will have um, certain elements they've tested. That are doing very well. So, for instance, it might be that the banner ads are working well if you're talking about an e-commerce site, or it might be that the content's doing particularly well. So, typically, what I'll come in um, and do initially is go through the different areas that they're working with and identify the worst performing parts. So, whether that's content, whether it's advertising, whether it's the UX, whatever it might be, and then having analysed which areas are the ones that are the most uh, probably the most easy to change initially, because you also have the motivated clients who want to make further changes, then that's the place that I'll usually start. Um, I am actually starting to move away from consultancy, though, because I find that the biggest challenge isn't getting companies so much to implement these changes, but it's, it's creating a conversation where people feel that they're empowered to make them for themselves. And I think a lot of that has to do with making this knowledge accessible to people. Um, yeah. So hence the book and the, the one you're working on now? Yeah, hence the book and the workshops and speaking about these things. I think one of the issues that we're seeing recurring um, throughout behavioral science sort of practices, especially with their commercial application, is that people are still not comfortable with the idea of applying behavioral sciences, or maybe they're not convinced as to their effectiveness, even though the research academically is, is really strong and increasingly in commercial sectors also very strong. Um, and so I'd like to be you know, pushing at that, that level. It's... Um, Yes, it's more rewarding on a personal level as well. <laughs> I can imagine. I mean, at the end of the day, it's 
and all the literature points to it that we operate through our our emotional spectrum first and then we think mm. over on top of that and yet the, you know it seems that you were saying before well so oftentimes in companies people go to go to the office they put on their proverbial tie and they become a different person when they come in thinking about performance key performance indicators metrics and you know and efficiencies and yet mm. if they if they could sort of put that aside and start thinking on a more more genuine level then you would get you would get to a better metric afterwards but they sort of put they reverse it around or at least or even they worse they just they're afraid to mention that or la or laugh at work or have a, um, a, a more you know imperfect and natural way mm. I and mean, i think what's what's interesting is that when you look at things like productivity and you look at performance um, there are certain hallmarks of well-being and performance productivity that you find again and again. So, for instance, having a diverse work group, so people who represent all genders, all ethnicity, a variety of ages, backgrounds, skills, etc. If you facilitate um, a community, whether that's the community that is your business or the community that is uh, your social group or you know a mixture of the two, then typically you find that people get a lot more emotionally, psychologically, intellectually from those diverse environments. Um, obviously, you have to have something that underpins them, so hence sort of going back to the whole values idea. Yeah. Uh, but yes, people do um, perform better, are happier, etc. When you when you take care of their emotional and psychological needs first. You know what makes me think of is that you've got a life on your weekend and your nights that's personal, family friends and and you know then you go into the office and you can either have some people you know one one case might be where at home i have a very mixed environment ethnically and so on and so forth and then at work it's all one type mm. and then the reverse can possibly happen as well where at home ha huh, gosh no i just have my you know my little area my little type my little thing mm -hmm. then at work i have to be exploded into this multi-diverse type of relationship and the ethnicities but in the end of the day what what i mean i i think the the notion is you generally speaking we should be encouraging more of your personality and what you do at home to influence and be involved in the way you work yeah i mean i think typically what you find is if you give people responsibility and agency then they tend to rise to the challenge there's this really interesting sort of almost non-work related um uh, story that I had of a while ago in one of these books, and it was talking about this chap in New York who sold coffee. And one of the problems with the productivity of what he was doing was that he would have to give people their change because people would give him, you know, several dollar bill or five dollar bill, whatever it is, and have to give them change. And what he ended up doing, the only bottleneck that he could find to sort of get rid of, was was that exchange of money. And so he, instead of kind of getting someone else to do it for him, he empowered people to take responsibility trusted them to be their best versions of themselves and created an honesty box it was literally just changed there for people to put in and to take out um, and he increased his uh, his turnaround I don't know something like threefold one of these ridiculous figures just by trusting people to be the best vision versions of themselves and so I think there's something to that in business in life if you kind of enable people to rise up to the expectations that you have of them and make sure they're high but they're attainable um, then they will be more free to bring their personality mm. into the job and, and to perform better. Mm. Love that. You know, it's like treating people like adults. 
<laughs> yeah. Tricky stuff. So um, when you're talking, let's say, emails or, mm. or community management, which are so based on, well, in the case of emails anyway, on a great headline text, what kind of, I mean, what do you have any secret tips and tricks of, of, of making for a vibrant community and or strong email? Yes, so I've got tips for both. So in terms of vibrant community, um, there's one thing that I found through a friend of mine, actually, who runs communities. He's absolutely brilliant. His name is Rich Millington, uh, and he runs this thing called the Virtual Community Summit, uh, and his business is called Feverbee. And uh, one of the things that he told me very early on, which was fascinating based on all his psychological research, is that facilitating self-disclosure within communities is a great way of getting them to bond. So for instance, you could set up a work community and say, right, within this community, we're going to talk about X, Y, and Z issues. But then if you also allow them to grumble about things that they want to grumble about, to go off on tangents, to bring into the conversation whatever they want, obviously without um, trolling anyone, then that creates a much stronger bond. Um, there's also stuff around in-groups and out-groups. So if you create uh, strong in-group in ties, then that can also facilitate um, a stronger fabric to your community. You have to be quite careful in how you do that. Mm -hmm. In terms of email and content, there are lots of things that you can do. So uh, research has found that there are certain words that are specifically, um, that can specifically target and engage people that score highly in specific personality traits. So for instance, if you're someone who has high dopamine levels and you're very um, uh, sort of, let's say, open to new experiences, things like uh, exciting, new, uh, creative, novel, those sorts of words are much more likely to attract that demographic than other words. So there's, there's research to suggest that you can use that. You can also use hooks, uh, so trigger words like bizarre, one weird tip, or you'll never guess what, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. So there are certain things that are tried and tested that can work when used um, you know, in balance with the tone of your brand. So, all right, so um, have you come across any brands that are segmenting their customers according to high dopamine levels? I mean, that would be a fascinating well, think, idea. Well, what's interesting is that you find, I'm not sure of any that are doing it yet. I do know uh, there's a company in Shoreditch that do some really interesting work along the, these lines called Visual DNA, and they do, um, well, I think they now have the, the largest psychometric bank in the world and they're looking to segment people based on their traits. In terms of a company that's already doing this, if you reverse engineer it and you look at, for instance, Red Bull, they've you know, succeeded uh, phenomenally well at identifying um, an audience which is adjacent to their product. So, you know, Red Bull is kind of the product, but they're going to create this whole, um, I forget the name of the, uh, you know, when they do all these competitions, they have the dude skydives. Well, anyway. Felix Baumgartner. <laughs> yeah, so basically, the people who are going to take these insane risks are going to be high in dopamine, and they're going to be these explorer types who will try new things. Mm -hmm. So, of course, all of their stuff is going to be high octane, you know, really sort of adrenaline pumped uh, content. So the images, the videos, the calls to action, the, the, the text that they use, all of that. Um, so that's a good example of, of high dopamine uh, mm -hmm. audience mm -hmm. targeting. Love it. And um, so another another area of interest for me was is... is um, as we're dealing with, as you mentioned before, with webs, you have to deal with agencies or, or generally, you know, some programmers or someone's going to do the work. And, mm. and so you have brands, you have agencies. And somehow I feel that the conversation consistently goes against 
good business sense. Well, for example, an agency is going to sell what actually they make money on. The brand pressured by short-term results, they forget to go for loyalty, long-term. Mm. I'm just wondering how, how do you how do you improve the relationship between brand and agency? Today it seems that, well, you know, on top of that you have digital agencies, um, non-digital agencies, or you know, you know, more traditional agencies who are all vying and spit up. Is, do you have any feeling for how to improve in that world? There's a thought. Good question. Um, I mean, the only thing that I would probably contribute to that question is figuring out how to align people's goals with one another. So if you are coming into either uh, an agency or another kind of business and you're trying to figure out how to generally move them in a particular direction, then typically if you look at ways in which to structure um, cultural change or decision change, etc., it's about identifying the key goals of the people who have the influence to change that organization or to change the project or whatever it might be that you're working on, and then find ways to align your proposition with that. And that's the same whether mm. you're working between businesses or with a client or in a relationship. Um, so one of the key things that you can do there, which is a really useful sort of persuasion technique, is to really listen to the language that they use to describe what it is that they're doing. So, for instance, if you've got someone that's saying, well, we really need to change um, the specific structure so we get a higher return on investment because of X, Y, and Z, then anything that you bring to the table, you could then frame within that uh, return on investment mm. framework. Mm. So you could say, okay, well, if we invest in some of the softer stuff, we can see that you're going to increase advocacy, which will give you a better return on investment. So it's about framing whatever it is that you're mm trying to do within that context. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I used to run a brand called Redkin mm. when I was working for L'Oreal. And one of the things I used to spend a lot of time doing, even though I was running the whole company, would be going in and, and spending time at the uh, integration seminar. So when new new people would come in, and I, I would spend particular time talking about the history of the brand and, and the values of the brand, and, and then demonstrating the type of behavior that we're hoping to see. And it, we also worked with an agency called Gotham in, mm. in the States that, uh, and, and the woman who ran it, uh, Sherry Barron, we, you know, we spent lots of time talking about the, the values of the brand. And we had a really very wholesome conversation, which led us to do mm. some really cool campaigns. In those days, it was sort of prior to the internet most of the time, but, um, yeah, you're right. And, and so um, one of the things I was thinking about, you mentioned um, personal relationships. Um, so a psychologist <laughs> tends to lead to, you know, oh gosh, you know, how are you evaluating me? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I was thinking of, a, of a, a video that you've probably seen where it was done by Microsoft, where this, the, the, the advertiser comes in as a guy, the woman sitting at the table, his, his ex-wife or soon-to-be ex-wife, or they're about to do the breakup. You, do you know the video I'm talking about? No. Well, in any event, it's it's uh, the, the advertiser comes in and says, oh, hi, honey. And she's about, I'm waiting for you. And, and she says, you know what? I want a divorce. Yeah. And 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 funnily enough, I think that there, this should play on two levels. One is, you know, men and women interacting. And this famous book, um, you know, You Just Don't Understand by Dr. Deborah Tannen, Men and Women in Conversation. And on the other side, the conversation at the brand level with customers. Mm. So I, I find that there's a whole lot of crossover in, in mm. the way personal relationships are managed and the way that brands are managed with customers. Or at least that's the sentiment I have 
that's now been enabled through the web. Yeah, I mean, I think we all bring um, projections into every relationship uh, that we that we engage in. So whether that's a one-on-one relationship with a lover, a friend, a family member, or whether that's with customers and clients, um, we all bring certain, I suppose, for, yeah, we, we make foregone conclusions about people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then that, that necessarily shapes our opinion of them, and mm-hmm. then we tend to seek for, or we tend to seek out information that confirms those biases. So I think something that's really crucial that very few people I've met do really well is to um, structure early conversations in such a way that you're really listening to the other person and you're being aware of any biases that you may bring to the table. So, I mean, that can be harder said than done, but that's very easier said than done, but really structuring um, a conversation so that you don't interrupt, so that you do ask the person in question and then you reflect back whatever it is that they've said to you with the specific words that they've used so that you feel that you can understand their internal um, territory as well as them understanding that you're listening, that can go a long way to really creating quite a deep connection um, but slightly freer of prejudices and biases right from the get-go. So active listening and this beautiful talent of empathy. Which, So how do you promote more empathy? I mean, because what you're saying there is is um, mentor should, you know, get outside of worrying about, you know, the zit on his nose and then, mm-hmm. you know, be listening to entirely to the words that are coming out of your mouth, the, even the mm-hmm. words, not just the meaning. And, and then, and reformulate that and stay in, in the space of Natalie as she's talking. Mm-hmm. And, and in, in essence, that's, that's what we, we should be doing in the web world. So we, got, we need to create more empathy or we need mm-hmm. to hire people who have a higher empathic Set, skill set. How do you how do you promote empathy? Well, interestingly, there's one piece of research, or well, several studies, but around the central premise um, that have looked at how to create, uh, well, how to increase empathy within people. And one thing that they found that does this really well is reading a broad range of fiction books. And the reason that they think that this is good at, um, at creating or engendering a sense of greater empathy with others is because it requires that you adopt the position of someone else. So it could be someone of a different gender, of a different sexuality, of a different uh, time period even. Um, And because you're living a narrative through the eyes of someone so different to yourself, you're having to adopt uh, that kind of, that alternative persona, that different headspace, and to see the world through someone else's eyes. And so it's one of the reasons why um, reading a diverse range of uh, range of fictional books as a kid is so important to getting people to really emphasize. So that's one key thing that you can do uh, that works really well. There's also another thing that came out recently. It was um, originally sort of cited in a, an article by by Wired, I think it was, 36 questions that you can get pairs of people who are strangers to ask one another that foster a deep sense of intimacy within one hour. And this sounds absolutely insane, but I have tried it and it does work. Um, and research studies have shown that it, it's very good in the short term. But having practices like that, where you're kind of cutting through all the differences to joint human experiences, um, that can be a really great way of, of sort of creating that shared experience of empathy. All right. So, Natalie, um, you're a speaker, an author, less of a consultant. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're also doing seminar. What, what else are you doing? What? How? How else could people wish to contact you? Um, so I do workshops as well. Next year we're going to be doing a lot more. There's some online courses that are coming up. 
Um, I do a lot of speaking, as you say. I also write for Marketing Week once, once a month, and I have uh, a podcast on my site that comes out every Tuesday. Um, loads of slides on SlideShare. I'm always on Twitter, at Matthew Ohio. So just, if you're interested in just getting in touch and having a chat, then I'm always happy to hear from smart people. <laughs> Brilliant. Natalie, love to have you on the show. Thanks it's for coming. Thank you. Great to have met you, and um, we'll stay in touch. Wonderful. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com, that's mindset with a Y, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes, that really makes my day. Happy trails, and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray.
how much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.